What's going on guys? We have a fire live today. We have Miss Erin, the boss of Primal Canine joining us. We are going to be talking about personal protection, what that job entails, Erin's um, personal story, and a whole lot more. We got a ton of questions, so can't wait to get Erin in here to talk. Hey. Hi. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. Good. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being on here. No problem. So I want to begin with talking about uh, your personal story and how you got started. Okay. Yeah. So like in dog trainer, like primal? Um, Kind of um, bring me back to uh, like Minnesota home. Okay. So when I lived back home, um, I shouldn't say this is home now, but where I'm from originally, um, I was working at the DOC going to school for um, psychology. So I'm still pursuing my PhD in psychology. And um, I met Mike uh, quite a long time ago. So we knew each other over social media and um, like rescue transport groups and everything. So he started doing seminars out there. And then after a little while, it made sense to have a primal canine out there. So that's how I first became involved with primal out there. And then his sister ran primal canine and then through a series of events that if you followed Mike for a while, people have heard about. So it didn't work out with his sister. So while I was working at the DOC going to school, I ran primal canine in the Twin Cities as well. Um, and so that's how I got started with everything on top of knowing Mike. I was lucky enough to be able to kind of pick his brain every day so i've been kind of inadvertently being trained to, to do this for a while um professionally like dogs was never a um career path that i really wanted to pursue so this wasn't really planned i guess to to be a part of like primal like in a professional way like i knew through mike i would be a part of it but that would just be kind of vicariously but um after things didn't work out with his sister it just it just made sense for me to take over there so it was kind of a sink or swim sort of a situation, but I'd listened to Mike, you know, teach for years and do phone evaluations and watched him train dogs and decoy and stuff. So I kind of, you know, I'd had a good, you know, handful of years of training without really knowing it. So um, I just started running stuff there. And then um, like if people followed Mike for a while, they knew that he was sick uh, about, you know, three, four years ago. And so when that happened, I flew out here to do two things, to be with Mike and help him through a bunch of stuff that was going on. And then also to pick up Ozzy, because that's when Ozzy was a puppy and it was time for me to come and pick him up. And I was going to be here for two weeks and do some training with him. And there's no, <laughs> um, another dogs are outside playing fetch and she's squeaking. Um, and so then it just kind of snowballed into I was here for a week and then two weeks and then two weeks turned into three weeks, four weeks. And then I just never left. Stuff was just not, um, you know, I guess like going the greatest here and like primal needed a lot of support because um, we were in the fight with Campbell um, in the city for that location and, and Mike just wasn't feeling well and a lot of the people that were originally in like our circle and that were kind of um, you know like with us when stuff was easy and fun like once stuff wasn't easy and fun and once we were fighting with the city and Mike wasn't feeling well um, a lot of people um, you know, weren't really around anymore. So it just seemed like an easy choice to stay. So I just wound up having a bag packed for two weeks and then we never left. So I moved all of my stuff here, thanks to Matt, Primal Canine Matt. Um, Matt flew out um, in a, and then he got a U-Haul and he packed up my stuff and he drove it back. So I had a very unconventional moving process to here. I didn't get to do the standard, you know, go through my stuff and pack up everything and um, kind of move across the country. It was very unplanned and inadvertent, I guess. So, but that's just sort of how stuff worked out. But it kind of, you know, was meant to happen because I'm here and, you know, everything went well. It was a bumpy road between now and then, but I'm glad that everything led to the point that it's at now. Mm -hmm. It's a journey. And thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, can we go back to um, your time when you were working um, at the Department of uh, corrections and yeah. kind of the stuff that you were doing there? Yeah. So originally, um, my, I said my career path was, um, and still hope maybe someday if I go back to it, uh, will be psychology. So with a focus on uh, rehabilitation um, of felons and also creating programs that reduce recidivism, which in recidivism is the rate at which people reoffend. So creating programs to make sure that prisoners are being successful in prison, that they have, you know, things like 
their social security card, their driver's license, um, you know, their high school diploma, things like that. And then making sure that we have jobs set up and everything lined up to, for when people like that go back out into the community, they don't come back and cost taxpayers more money. Um, and so we had a lot of work ahead of us where we are basically trying to convince people that it was worth it to put the money in upfront to create these programs and to, um, I guess, provide supplemental education and, and other things for these people so they didn't come back. So we had to do a lot of work in the community talking to people about, you know, um, like where this money was going to and what it was doing and what good the programs were doing. And if you didn't, you know, appreciate it from an ethical standpoint, it financially made sense to support these programs because these people weren't coming back into the system. So um, designing those programs and then working with uh, restorative justice, which is was another department. I was placed there, so I didn't know what restorative justice was when I originally started working. Um, I just applied for a random job at the DOC and they said, this is where openness. So that's where I first started. And then restorative justice is just creating relationships between people that were victims and people that were offenders. And so, you know, trying not to do further harm. Um, it was, it's definitely not something that a lot of play, uh, a lot of places have like in places a program because it, it takes quite a bit of work on the back end. Like it's a couple of years before um, victims have contact with offenders and we have to make sure there's just a lot of steps to it. But so that was really important work. And then that led to me being um, part of like a domestic violence kind of like task force that we went in. We went through all of the current incarcerated people's um, backgrounds and what their previous charges were to find the prevalence of domestic violence. And it was um, actually really high. I think it want to say it was 65% of all people that were currently incarcerated um, had at one point uh, committed a domestic, uh, you know, a domestic assault or a domestic crime of some type. So we were creating programs, doing things to make sure that like people like that were understanding like why they were taking part in abuse like that, why it was ongoing, like what happened to them, how to stop the cycle of that. Because obviously, you know, women that are abused, they typically get into continuous relationships where they're abused and then their kids see that. So those boys grow up to feel like that treatment's okay. And the girls grow up to think that treatment's acceptable. And so they kind of, it's a vicious cycle that kind of continues. So we would do a lot of work with people um, intervening in the families at home, making sure those kids had counseling, making sure that those female, you know, or male victims in some cases, a little more rare than, than female victims, but making sure that we are kind of stopping that cycle of abuse and that cycle. So um, those were a lot of things that I did there, but uh, I kind of abruptly left. I took a leave of absence to come out here and then thankfully, um, while I was out here, I was able to have like a good ending to that relationship. They understood why I was out here. They knew I was supporting Michael. He was going through everything that he was and they understood about my move. So um, hopefully like it's something I can go back to doing because I definitely would like to um, continue that work here and continue, you know, working in prisons here and everything, but um, de definitely a little bit different of a kind of, I guess, like political culture here. So um, there's not as much funding for things like that. So but it still would be something I would like to pursue at some point. It's such good work. Um, it, it takes a very, very strong person to um, work in that, in that line of work. Um, how, has that, how did that experience kind of shape you into um, who you are and how you um, handle your work and you know, run stuff as a boss and just as primal and just as leaders in the industry and just in general? Um, I, I think like at first, I know when we had kind of discussed it, like uh, um, I was trying to think of like more correlations to it because it wasn't like I had done that and it's like, oh, it easily led into this. But as I started doing this more, I definitely realized that the way that you speak to people or have to talk to people like during dog training or like how you manage multiple people can um, be definitely like an overflow of the stuff that I learned there and that I learned in school, like how to properly communicate to people what different communication styles are, being empathetic with people. Um, a lot of people that come in for dog training, like they, you know, like they use a lot of I statements, like this is what I want, this is what I'm comfortable with. So just having the ability to try to talk to people and just let them know, like, you know, I understand how you feel, like I get why you would, you know, not want to do this or do this type of training, but like, here's why it's beneficial. So a lot of the work that I do is I take a lot of time to talk to people on the phone. And so there's people that come to us that are like positive reinforcement only, but you know, their dogs bitten multiple people. So, you know, just having to sit kind of to sit down and break down, like, you know, why what you're doing is not working and why we have to change this and like what, you know, just trying to 
communicate with somebody on their level and be empathetic and validate their feelings. Um, and that's just a lot of like the work that, that I do on the phone, like with phone evals and setting up, um, you know, talking to people via email, because we do get a lot of inquiries about stuff like that. So, and then just with dealing, um, just with life in general here, like dealing with, you know, supervising people, like, you know, making sure that we're maintaining appropriate relationships, like making sure that people are feeling safe in our work environment, being, you know, safe as trainers, being talked to, um, you know, as well as clients too, like I said, just making sure that we're um, reassuring people that we're actually there for them through this process. We're not here to just take your money. Like we're not trying to just get the job done. Like we really do care about people understanding this process and why we're doing it and what we're doing with your dog. Like we're not just trying to, you know, make money and go. Mm -hmm. You care. Um, can you also uh, thank you. And it shows, it really does show. Um, I said this to you yesterday, but um, you, how uh, I have never been to your facility, but obviously um, there are so many people that look up to you guys and um, that, that um, care for other people um, definitely goes through social media. So good, good work. Thank you. Um, so following up on that, let's talk about um, personal protection work and the temperament that you have to have to have, you know, these, a duchy or, you know, if you could talk about Ozzy and, and talk about um, like what goes into having a, a very strong, powerful dog like that. Yeah. I do definitely get asked a lot of people like, do you, like, what do you do to hold him back? And it's like, I wasn't really, I definitely had like a crash course in handling dogs. I wasn't something that I was going to do or something that I was like, Oh, I really want to start handling working dogs or doing something like that. Like one of the first dogs I handled was Cerberus. Um, and if anybody's decoyed Cerberus or has met him, like he's, um, he's quite the, I don't, know, I don't really know how to describe him. Like he's just, he's really crazy and he can be kind of all over the place. So it's a big, it was my first big responsibility in handling a dog because it's like, if I screw this up, um, you know, like I'm going to get somebody hurt. So it's like, I have to watch like what the dog's doing. I have to watch what I'm doing. I have to listen to the decoy. I have to listen to Mike or whoever is directing me. And it's just, um, it's just so much stuff like at once to pay attention to. And so I think as like a handler, when I first got started, like I just getting put into like the world without even thinking about it. Like I now look back and like, I know why people are overwhelmed as first time handlers because you're trying to do so many different things that will, excuse me, like at once. Um, like I said, like just listening to the multiple people, but, um, with Ozzy, it was like, I was really lucky to just to know him before he was even like, a, you know, a physical being, like we knew that breeding was going to take place and we knew that six was going to be bred. We just didn't know to who, and I'd met six and I'd always just loved her. And so knowing that Ozzy was going to be my dog before he was actually my dog is something that formed like a really crazy bond between him and I. So the fact that he's as big as he is or that he's as drivey as he is, I feel like it helps so much that I have the relationship with him that I have because it's like we just sort of have like this understanding. I don't have to use excessive force to control my watch. A lot of people who are larger than me that use a lot of force like on dogs, like they're, you know, overcorrecting their frying dogs and e collars, like they, you know, people that smack dogs in the face with leashes. And it's like, I understand that some people that's the training style, but I've never had to use excessive force with Ozzy. Like I just built a very specific relationship with him from the time that he was a puppy till he, till now. So it's like, he just respects me and works for me because we have that relationship. Mm -hmm. And can you go into a little bit about um, uh, like the, the size and kind of the stereotype of, of um, let's say, in, let's say being a female handler? Yeah. Um, I mean, unfortunately, like, I really dislike the label of like female handler just because um, I feel like it's one of those things where women don't want to be categorized as something else because they're women or like they don't want to be seen as just being good at something because they're a girl like, oh, well, you're good for a girl or you're good with this. But um, I would just prefer to be known as like someone who's just good at handling dogs. And my advice for women is definitely no different than men. I mean, I always joke, people are like, what's the best advice? And I was like, well, just, you know, anchor, plant your feet and don't, don't get anybody hurt. But there definitely is so much more that goes into it. But my advice for men is the same as it is for women. Talk to me differently because I'm a girl. And sometimes I feel like that does happen where, you know, we're 
trainers will, you know, maybe say that something was okay when it wasn't because it's a girl. Like if you come and handled our facility, like if you nearly get someone bit, like you'll get told, Hey, like you need to do this, like make sure you do that. It's the same way we talk to, you know, a male handler. So I just personally just wouldn't want to be treated differently or looked at differently for being, I guess, like a girl. I don't feel like it matters whether you're male or female, like your job is the same, like your responsibility is the same. Um, you know, your job is to be in there and make sure the dog's safe, that the decoy's safe and that you're, you know, keeping on top of what you're doing at all points in time. So I feel like that regardless of, you know, of, of sex or anything doesn't really change. But I guess a lot of people kind of think it's, you know, I guess like special to be like a female handler and granted that like women aren't as strong as men, you know, um, physiologically, but I don't really think that that matters like at the end of the day, because I'm the smallest person and I handle the biggest, highest drive dog. So I think it all comes down to how well you bond with that dog. And so my advice to people always is it's relationship based. Like obviously like if you have like a 200 pound Preza, like it helps if you're maybe lift some weights, but Ozzy's about 95 pounds and he, I'm about 120 pounds. So we don't, our weight variance isn't much. It's just kind of about counterbalancing and knowing the dog, knowing their movements. Um, and I guess just being confident in what you're doing, that just takes time and experience, whether you're asking for it or not. So I kind of got a crash course. And my the dog that I had before, Ozzy too, um, Santo, who passed away 2019, April, he was bigger than Ozzy. And so when I got him, like, um, you know, handling him was just kind of like, oh, like this is what's like to basically have a leash on a horse and try to hold them back. So... <laughs> I kind of, you know, got got a little bit of experience before having Ozzy to have like a bigger, you know, what it's like to have a bigger dog physically, but Ozzy is basically the same size with higher drive. So I've definitely had to learn, um, you know, and, and just shift on my feet and just know what I'm doing and just do my best to not get anybody hurt. <laughs> For people that are aspiring to handle a very big dog like Ozzy, um, what are some things that go into um, what are some tips that you can give to uh, have people go on that path to being able to handle a strong dog um, and to be able to like feel like they can protect themselves and their home and kind of live in a safe place mentally? Yeah, I think um, why, what it comes down to, and I talk about this a lot in my stories, and it's probably like a broken record, is I think people have to really understand like the level of liability you have with a protection dog, like it's, um, you know, not only are you responsible for the damage that they do to somebody, but like, especially in the state that we live in California, um, like the laws are crazy and you can get sued for almost anything. Somebody can break into your home and you can get sued for them getting hurt in your home. So it's really important to know the laws where you live. Um, and the best way to do that is to talk to people that are lawyers in the area, talk to people that are insurance agents, talk to people that are police officers, um, city officials, just knowing how it is that you are allowed to defend yourself. And that's a ridiculous statement, but like there definitely are laws about what you can and cannot do to properly defend yourself without, you know, you getting in trouble for doing what you were kind of forced to do if you're placed in that situation. But um, the first thing I always tell people is aside from being able to physically handle the dog, having good communication with them is knowing, like I said, the laws in the area, like what your rights are, having proper homeowners insurance, um, and I always tell people like the best way to do is to, if you don't have homeowner's insurance or renter's insurance, I would get it just not even for the fact of having like a dog, but just that it's important to have that stuff in general. But when you do, you want to be careful to look at the clauses about what they actually do or do not cover when it comes to dog bite liability, because a lot of places will cover like incidents in your house or, you know, like a window getting broken or anything like that. And you'd think since a dog is considered property that any damage you know, done by your property or with your property would be covered, but like dogs are a special clause. So checking into that's really important. And if your homeowner's insurance doesn't have an option for a clause like that, I tell people that there are specific dog bite liability insurance companies. I believe one is Xsurance. Um, I'll put it on my story after this. I did post it a few days ago, but they specialize specifically in insurance for dog bite liability and they don't discriminate based on breed. Um, and so, but the only thing that doesn't cover for dogs like that is if you or one of your family members gets bitten by that dog in your home, because they're not going to cover, you know, a mistake that you make. It's to cover people trespassing on your premises and them getting hurt or you being out on a walk and your dog biting somebody or biting another dog, if that, you know, which does happen. Um, so knowing that stuff. And then I think something that's not talked about too much, but which does, which needs to be talked about is the actual 
preparation people need mentally and physically for if something was going to happen. A lot of people have protection dogs, but they don't have an answer for what it is they're going to do after a protection dog has to do its job if they do. So if somebody comes in your house, like, you know, everyone says, okay, well, my dog's going to bite them. But well, then what happens after that? Like, do you think your dog's going to stay on that bite until the police get there? Depending on where you live, that can be 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Um, so you have to know the laws in your area for like what proper detainment looks like. So it's like, are you allowed to even detain somebody? In some states, you're not allowed to physically detain someone in your home. Um, so you'll have to know how to do that, why to do it. Like, are you going to use zip ties? Like, do you plan on tying somebody up with rope? Do you have that readily available? Do you have a dog that's going to actually out and then go into a down in front of somebody they were just biting? Or do you actually plan on trying to out your dog, put them in a kennel, and then come back to where that person was and hope they haven't left your house or found an additional weapon to fight you? Um, so just things like that, kind of knowing what an actual game plan is for what you would be able to do or what you're capable of doing when your dog actually bites somebody like not only in your home but out on a walk like are you going to out your dog and leave like do you plan on physically trying to detain somebody do you have a dog that's capable of doing that Ozzy's capable of being on a bite for up to 20 minutes I mean we haven't pushed him long in that but I think that he would you know bite somebody for that long and hold them um and Mike can vouch for the, the fact that he'll do that but um you know just knowing things like that and then just having a game plan and that doesn't even go into the thought about like how mentally ready are you for that stress and how how well can you function under that stress like is there a way that you i mean like have you done home invasions where it's been set up where you don't know someone's going to be hiding in your house you don't know when they're going to pop out and then how well do you handle that pressure like how well do you perform you can always set that stuff up but you never know how you're actually going to respond to that type of mental and emotional pressure um, you know, if it happens and how well you're going to do and how well your dog's going to do. So just knowing how to prepare yourself for that best as possible, um, knowing self-defense, you know, if you don't have, um, you know, if you're not able to have a gun or some kind of a weapon that you use, like what kind of self-defense do you know? Mike's worked with me before to do stuff like that's like jujitsu. So he's actually had Ozzy on the bite and he's had me get down on the ground. He's gone over top of me and you know, he'll put his like forearm against like my neck and he'll show me how to actually move his arm off of me, how to push him off of me using his leverage and his momentum, you know, and Ozzy's on the bite the whole time. So that way he actually knows, you know, that like it's okay that we can fight like this and like he doesn't want to come off or he knows how to fight with me. And so just being prepared for things like that. Like if you, you know, aren't in your house and you don't have a gun, like, you know, how to get somebody off of you. Um, like I said, and these are difficult things to prepare for because like nothing's really going to mimic, um, you know, the, you know, like, like the, someone just called to the, like the worst case scenario, like you don't know how to really mimic that type of stress, but doing everything you can to prepare for it. And then knowing what you are not and are able to do legally with someone if that happens. So it's important stuff to look up and important things to talk to like local, you know, like understand that, you know, what's your rights and what's your law are when it comes to things like personal protection dogs because it definitely varies from state to state and then you know addressing like I said like personally like what you can and cannot do and what you know that you're capable of. Do you guys offer self-defense classes at um, Primal Canine? Um, we currently don't. It's something that we've been wanting to add into like our seminars. It's something Mike and I have talked about um, and it's actually something that Matt from Ray Allen um, kind of originally put in my brain when we were out there because he's the one that asked that question. This was probably like three, maybe four years ago, like when he was just like, okay, so it's like your dog bites him. Like, what are you going to do? And like in my head, I was just like, oh shit. Like, I don't know. Like, I just realized that it's like, you know, we, we train our dogs um, to this level and like, we try to prepare them for these things. But then you realize that you yourself, like you're not actually prepared um, for this kind of stuff. And then like, you don't have an answer. And it's like, I feel like if somebody asks you, you should have a very specific answer to that because you owe that to your dog. It's like, if you're going to train your dog to do this and put their life on the line and potentially be a kamikaze for your safety, the least you can do is know, um, you know, how to protect both of you. You know, you have to be the first line of defense with your dog. You have to be someone who understands how to protect both of you, both legally and physically. So um, I think that's like a big responsibility that people like overlook when it comes to that kind of stuff. But um, the self-defense is something that I hope that we can add in to what it is we're doing. Like I said, we've talked about it. Um, and it's, 
it's definitely something that I feel like everybody needs to know, especially like, you know, men, but especially women, because in all reality, it's like the, you know, the majority of attacks, you know, happen with women. Like, that's why a lot of women want protection dogs. And almost every single male that contacts us for protection dog, that's for their wife or for their girlfriend, or it's for their family at home. And it's like, well, it's great. You want this dog, but you know, like, what do the people that are going to be home alone with this dog, like how involved are they going to be in training? Like, do they really understand what it's going to take to deploy a dog? Like how to do all this stuff? Because like, like, so like 80% of the time, these dogs are for, you know, women, um, either they're getting them for themselves or men are getting them. So I think it's something that it's something that we should be offering in the future. And if it's something that some place around you doesn't offer, like go take a jujitsu class, like go take, you know, even Krav Maga, just anything that's going to help you, you know, understand like the stress and like what to do, you know, in a situation like that, because any, knowing anything's better than nothing having mace, having a knife, like having just something is better than having nothing. But the best case scenario is for you to be trained and prepared for something like that. And the only way that you can do that is to, you know, is to, you know, do that training, take those classes, you know, you know, do as much scenario training as you possibly can. Absolutely. Well, I look forward to you guys implementing uh, self-defense into your into, into primal. If uh, anyone could do it, I know you guys will make it happen. So <laughs> thankfully, it's something that Mike knows a lot more about. I don't, um, I don't know too much jujitsu. I just know the few things that he's taught me. But um, he had me put I think I want to I'm probably gonna mess up the name but he had me put him in like a chokehold. And at, you know, he had me kind of like lock my arms in like a triangle around his neck and he, it's like, he started to pass out. I was like, oh, sorry. <laughs> Cause he told me like, just press right here. And I was doing it. And like, I was on the bite and like, you see Mike's eyes roll in the back of his head. And it's like, well, <laughs> if I can do this to you, like, you know, like you, you know, you're quite a bit larger than me. It's like, anybody could probably do this to someone. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. So I, I imagine that, you know, most people, when they're in a jam, they call a trainer like, help me, you know, my dog's freaking out. I'm sure it's the same with personal protection. Well, okay, is it the same? Like, if someone feels like they're in danger, do, are they going to, do you get calls from people? Like, I, I feel, I'm, I don't feel safe. Like, I need a personal protection dog. Can you help? Yeah, I, I think it's usually, like I said, it's, it's typically more so men that reach out and say that, like, I know I'm going to be traveling for work or I know... <laughs> Um, you know, like I work weird hours or we live out in this area and it's not nice. And I want this dog, you know, for like my wife or for my girlfriend or for like my daughter, or, like we get a lot of people like that want to send off protection dogs to college with their kids. Like it's getting more and more common, um, that people are seeking out that kind of stuff. And some people are open and they say, Hey, there was this incident. So it's like, we'd like to pursue something. And some people just call and say like, Hey, like, you know, there's all these factors that are lined up. So we'd like to consider a dog like this, but um, multiple things happen. Like most people aren't ready for the financial commitment that comes with it. So it's like, there's a lot of sticker shock with like the price tag. Um, you know, if I didn't know Mike and if he wasn't, you know, someone that I knew personally that I lived with and that trained Aussie, like to get Aussie to the point that he's at, I probably would have spent $30,000 in training. Like it's, you know, the level at which we train, like he does bite work every day. Um, so I mean, it's definitely not by any mistake that he's as good and, you know, at what he does as he is, it's because there's been constant and consistent focus training him since he was eight weeks old. So it just doesn't, doesn't happen like, you know, by accident to just buy a dog and train it and just does like the stuff that he does. But the majority of calls are usually people saying, hey, like, you know, I saw, you know, Ozzy on big dogs on um, like Snapchat, there's a video. And so we got a lot of calls like, you know, is he for sale or can I get a dog like him? And I tell people like, you know, here's the base price for like a puppy. And then here's the constant commitment that's going to happen financially and physically. Like, you're going to have to come and do training. And most people are like, oh, well, you know, I don't really have time for that. Or I couldn't really do that. And so then I say, well, this is what a finished dog costs. And most people, um, you know, $30,000 plus is like, you know, is not what most people are looking to spend on a dog. But that's, you know, like that's the, that's not even... Like if you're looking at like a finished dog, like if we were to sell Ozzy, like, you know, he'd, he'd probably be a hundred thousand dollar dog with the amount of work that's gone into him with the amount of, you know, stuff that he's capable of with the amount of damage he could do. Um, and it's just like at to a certain point, like trying to get people to sell dogs that they put so much work into for anything less than 15, 20, $30,000 is insulting to the people that have done it. So but there's a lot of people, I think price kind of comes in. But um, so that usually scares most people away. And then if people get past that point of like what the price is, it's usually like the time commitment and the work. And then, you know, the stringency of the household management, people think they're going to get a dog and have it do the really crazy working side stuff. But then they want to go to barbecues and be pet by people. And 
you know, go to the beach and go to dog parks. And it's like, you know, you, there's a lot of things that unless you get the unicorn of a dog that you give up workability wise for the social side. And so a lot of people aren't willing to forego the social stuff for the, for the level of work that they want. Um, but every once in a while you get people that come in that are super committed. They want to do whatever it takes. Um, we have a client that has, um, they have three protection dogs. They put all the dogs through training with us. Like they come to training every single week. They drive from Santa Cruz and they're great. I mean, they do everything that they need to do and they've really committed to it. And they're probably the safest family in that area because of it, you know, um, and they're people that were able to go on and buy a big chunk of land and, you know, they can now feel safe having their kids out because these dogs are out with them. You know, they patrol like the area, like they're, you know, aware of who comes in and comes out. So it's definitely like possible to do it, but I, a lot of people have a hard time following up with the financial commitment and the work. And I think it's something that people overlook, like the amount of money that you'll spend and the amount of time that you'll spend to get a dog like that. Can you talk a little bit more about the financials, like say for someone that wants to get um, like a, a Dutchie or a Mal, um, th the cost that would go into having a dog or I mean, or any type of dog, uh, yeah, the financial costs. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's, it's like to get a good dog, I mean, if you're looking at buying locally, like, I mean, most people will charge 2,500, you know, 3,000 for a puppy. You know, and then you're looking at obviously doing the vetting, um, you know, having them on a good diet, you know, good food. And then, you know, the gear that you need, like, you know, harnesses, collars, you know, long lines, stuff like that, like the crates, you know, like some dogs need really crazy crates. Um, and then just like, you know, also like the time commitment that equates to money, how far are you willing to drive for a trainer? Like how much, you know, like, are you willing to sit in traffic? Like, where do you, you know, it's like, we're, we're located in, say, if someone lives in San Francisco, like, you know, they're, it's like you're you're doing a lot of commuting. So people have to factor that in. Like, you know, like what's your work schedule? Like how often are you able to come down? Like what, you know, are you willing to, you know, use the one day off a week you have to come to training and commit to doing training and spend three hours in traffic going back home? Like it's just most people, it's they can shy away from that. Um, and then I'd say money wise too. It's um, like I said, like the liability insurance, not, not also cheap. And then, you know, I have health insurance on Aussie as well too, because I learned that lesson the hard way with Santo after we racked up nearly $20,000 in vet bills when he had lymphoma that I just wish I would have had um, pet insurance on him because that way it's like at least that would have been taken care of. But so I learned that the hard way. So I think that's something people should also, you know, set aside like money wise and then just incidental stuff like just daily costs like, you know, so that the food they need, the random stuff you have to buy, like, um, yeah, it just, it really does add up. Um, but I think mainly it's, it's cost and it's, um, you know, the cost of training, cost the dog and the training. So unhealthy pause is what I use. Somebody just commented. That's what I have. Yeah. They're great. They're great for pet insurance. They don't cover, um, routine stuff. They cover emergency, but they're, they have a really like low deductible and a really high payout and they don't have caps. So that's why I picked them. So it's like, if he breaks his leg, jumping into a car, which I imagine at some point might happen, um, I can take him in and they don't have any um, deductible like that. That's impossible to meet and they don't have a cap. So, but yeah, so I'd say like, you know, money wise, like it just is something people have to be conscious about. But um, I always tell people you get what you pay for. I mean, sometimes you can get a good dog, you know, like I, I know a lot of people that have fantastic dogs on Craigslist, um, you know, Hazel the Pitbull, she trains at ACS. Like she's, her name I think is the Craigslist killer. It's pretty funny, but you know, they, they compete in sport and like, they're amazing. And she was like, and Hazel was a, you know, just a, a dog she got online. So, but for the most part, like if you're going to a breeder and it's somebody's house and they're charging you $300 for the puppy and you bring the dog and say, Hey, I want this dog to be a protection dog. Like most likely, you know, like you could have like a one in a million dog, like you could have, you know, that great dog. But for the most part, like you really get what you pay for with breeding, with health, like with, you know, knowing who the parents are, knowing what their lineage is, like knowing what their health is, like that stuff's really, you know, like important. And like that's, you know, if you're going to put that much money into a dog and want them to do a really serious job, like you have to be willing to spend the money on the dog up front, you know, just for the puppy or for the finished dog or the green dog, whichever. Mm -hmm. Such good information. Um, so that brings us to your new dog, Zando. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what's we, the story? It, we've been kind of looking for uh, an adult dog intermittently um, since Santo passed away, just because um, I really like, you know, he was like, you know, everyone talks about their heart dog. Like, you know, also I love Ozzy, but Santo was so incredibly special. And the way that we lost him was so like, just like sudden, it felt so unfair. He was only four years old. Um, 
and I just loved how incredibly social he was. Like he just, he didn't care about dogs. He didn't care about people. Like even the dogs that weren't good with other dogs, like they were great with him. Like he just was the most amazing dog. He was fantastic with Mike's daughter. She loved him and he was so gentle with her. And so there was, um, there's been some dogs that have come up like between now and then that people have kind of said, hey, this dog's for sale or we're looking for, you know, a buyer for this dog. And it's just like, they maybe were too edgy or not social enough or maybe like too young or too old. But um, our friend uh, Graham through Ireland Working Canine contacted us and said, hey, are you still looking for a PH1 dog? And I, you know, Mike said no in the background. I ran over and I said, yes. And then he goes, he goes, don't send her pictures. I was like, send me the pictures. <laughs> so Graham sent me pictures. And I looked at Mike and I said, I was like, can we get him? And he just like, you know, he gives me the look he always does. And he was like, you're, you know, you're fucking crazy. Like, we, <laughs> but I just said, uh, I just, you know, I just asked more questions. And so it was really rare because not only is Zando, uh, Zando like a PH1, but he's a PH2. And so those dogs are almost never for sale because people put so much work into them that they don't want to sell them. You know, they've, they've competed for probably at least a minimum of five years. Um, and so Zando did his PH1 and PH2 and both with, you know, high score and honors and, um, the guy said he's super social, like he's dog neutral. And um, a lot of people asked why the guy was getting rid of him. Wasn't for any reasons that there was anything wrong with him, uh, you know, medically or behaviorally or anything. It's just that over um, in Amsterdam, where they live, they actually are still in really strict lockdown. So they'll get fined for going outside and training. So they're not allowed to go outside and they're not allowed to be training. So it's like the he his dog wasn't getting any work and they canceled the the championships, I believe which were supposed to take place later this year. And so that would have been kind of like the pinnacle of like the one thing that they had left to do, um, like with him as like a dog and the guy's like, well, it's canceled. I can't train him. And, um, you know, he said like he was told about us and like the life we'd offer him and like what, you know, probably, you know, hopefully at least like looked at like our training and saw the lifestyle that we had and knew that we were going to appreciate all the work he had put into him and, you know, do right by him. And so the guy was willing to sell him to us. And so we actually were able to get him, but, I didn't announce anything about it previously because we've had such bad luck with importing dogs, just like the, like the physical um, part of importing, like, because with COVID it's been really hard to, to, to fly dogs over because shipments have been limited or like things get canceled or there weren't flights going from um, Europe to anywhere but Chicago or New York. And so we originally, we were having to fly dogs into Chicago and have them ground transported. And it's just like, it's just, it had been just such like a mess. Um, and then when you import dogs too, you have to get brokers, which I didn't know about until we started doing this. And I was like, wait, why do we need a broker? We already paid shipping, but it's like, whenever you do anything through customs, you have to get a broker and they have to approve the shipment. And it's like, it costs more money. And so it just is like a, this kind of very involved process that, I mean, I learned about the hard way <laughs> through doing all this, but, um, I told Mike, I just don't want to say anything until it gets here because I don't want to jinx it. Like, I don't want the then to say, oh, he has to land in the Midwest or, oh, he can only, you know, fly to New York and we have to somehow get him across the country. So once he finally got here, I was like, okay, like now we'll announce it because it's done and it's over. I, I can't jinx it by like telling people about it, but, mm -hmm. but he's, he's great. He's been here since Friday and um, we are kind of, you know, waiting to see Mike's like, well, we'll see if you get attached and like, we'll see if you bond with him. Like, we'll see if, you know, you, um, you like him. And I'm just like, well, why? Like, <laughs> I want to keep him. You know, for some wild reason, he just, you know, it just wasn't, you know, driving between him and I, but he's honestly, he's great. I love him. Um, it's like he has lived here his whole life and like he's known us before. So it was almost like an instant bond right away. So it was really cool. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. Can you explain what a PH1, PH2 is? I will, yeah, I'll definitely do my best. So it's so KMPV is a sport um, over in Europe. That's like their police sport. It's kind of like what IPO is was for like Germany. Like it was it was originally their standard for police dogs to go through like their training. And so PH1 stands for um, like police hound or police hound one. So it's a level one and then PH2 is a level two. So if you I think I know I put it on my story, but like there's a routine they go through in the PH1, like they have to like swim across the canal and bite somebody. They have to do like a transport. They have to do just all these different bite work exercises and like environmental things for them to pass the PH1. The PH2 is even crazier. Like they have to do, um, you know, like a God, like man in the woods. Like they have to do like, a, you know, there's, there's searches that they have to do article retrieving. It's like he can, we can throw a penny out in a field and he'll find it and bring it back. He does like crazy searching for like metal articles um 
And so it's just, so it was both those processes that he went through. And so there's no level three, there's just the, the PH1 and the PH2. So he went through all the training to do both of those. <laughs> Somebody's probably too close to your house. <laughs> it's always like when you're doing something too, it's like they can all, they all can be completely quiet and they just wait, just like kids. Uh, she, she is, uh, Tito, she's, he's good. Um, uh, uh, awesome. Thank you for explaining that. Um, I want, I'm going to take some of these questions um, from, from, from everyone. Yeah. All right. Uh, okay. Where do I begin? All right. We're just going to go one by one. How was Ozzy raised slash socialized until he was a full PPD, personal protection dog? So with Ozzy, um, we were lucky since we, well, since we bred the litter, I think that's a question that somebody else had asked too, like where he was bred. So Ozzy was bred in-house like by us. So we own Ozzy's mom. She, she lives with the woman who actually owns um, Six's sister as well. So we have the aunt and the mom to Ozzy. Um, and so he was bred in house and so we actually had all the siblings so lee who you interviewed previously lee has mercy that's ozzy's sister litter mate so we have lucy that's the sister um and then gary was a dog that matt raised he went to las vegas metro pd and then um seven was sold to a client and then uh gold coast took two of the dogs out of the breeding rogan who is now i believe working for a police department and then their dog went to um like a sport home but um when they were growing up it's like they all you know basically like grew up together so we had all of the dogs from the from that litter like we had so many of them still so it's like they hung out together they were living um like at the facility like in during the day like and then we would take them all home so we were just carting dogs back and forth and i'll never forget that like when we would drive i had to have ozzy and lucy in my lap because mike's dogs were in the back like um in the back part of the car and so then i had these two giant dutch shepherds riding in the front seat on my lap <laughs> usually like and they'd be like trying to play with each other. Ozzy would be down beneath my feet and he'd be biting Lucy. But um, anyway, so like they, they were constantly around other dogs at the facility. So it's like they've seen the board and trained dogs come in and out. So this is when we had our facility um, at, in Morgan Hill. And then they also were at our Campbell facility for a while. So like they were just around so much, they got to see so many people. And I'll never forget at first that people like just thought they were regular puppies. So people would, you know, clients would be like, I want to see the puppies. And we're like, you don't want to play with these dogs. Like they're not nice at all. And I see, I love the comments too. Like Mo and Matt's girlfriend, Danette, remember that anytime that we would let them out, like I would be like, somebody had better like let me know first. Cause like, I want to have a chance to climb up on top of something because they would just, they'd bite so much. And like, there's a video out there of Lee where they chase Lee up the fence and Lee's trying to climb a fence to get away from them. And they're all <laughs> latched onto his legs. Even his own dogs latched onto his legs. And it was so funny. <laughs> Um, but they, they got to be around so many other people and things and places. And we took them out so many places. Um, like we, especially with working dogs, like we do our best like, to avoid really heavy saturated dog areas, but like, we still took them out. Like we went to like lazy dog, like, you know, like we would, you know, walk them to downtown Morgan Hill. Like we took them out all these places and because we wanted to make sure that they weren't dogs that were shut-ins until four months old, because, um, especially with dogs like that, we didn't want to risk any kind of you know, behavioral stuff, lack of environmental exposure. Like we didn't want them to be weird about, you know, a, a, you know, like a car driving by or like, you know, like another dog barking or a stroller, like just stuff that dogs get weird about when they spend the first, you know, four or five months of their life inside, which is what a lot of people do with, you know, puppies and that's, they develop the same problems. So he was around a lot of other dogs and thankfully he was around people, which is why he won't murder um, Matt, Lee, Danette and Monique, who are, are, you know, people that are kind of in our inner circle and they're people to this day that can still, come up to him, pet him, and, like, and need be if Mike and I leave town, like, Matt and Lee can come and let him out, um, but I'd say, like, his socialization definitely, um, dropped off around, like, four months, because he started actually trying to go after dogs and go after people, and so those were things that we did correct, so we don't correct anything in working dogs, um, you know, we let them pull, we let them, you know, bark, jump, bite, do all that stuff, like, just be assholes, pretty much, but when it comes to, like, unbridled, like, reactivity like that, like, he started thinking he was a little bit too tough and he started trying to, you know, snap at people like that weren't even anywhere near him or pay attention to him or he was trying to go after their dogs. And so that was stuff that we did correct. Um, and so after that socialization for Ozzy very much so was like me taking him out and just making sure that he just wasn't being an asshole to anybody because he was always, 
you know, trying to get one up on like everybody around him. But I mean, we did that. We built that ego into him. That was something that, you know, we, you know, kind of focused on on purpose with him. We wanted to make him think that he was King Kong. And I mean, it worked because he, he does. <laughs> but he, I mean, properly socialized. Like, I think a lot of people think socializing means we took him to dog parks to let people pet him. But for us, socialization is neutrality. It's him going places and doing things and seeing all this stuff and knowing that it exists, but it, but learning to like not give any merit to it. Like it's not anything he needs to pay attention to. It's not, you know, other dogs don't mean he's going to get to play. People don't mean he's going to get pet. So the only people that we really let interact with them was our inner circle. And so after that, it was all just taking him out and just, you know, training him out and about, you know, having treats with me, just doing the stuff that we recommend to do to even with pet clients is we just wanted neutrality from him and it paid off because um, like that behavior after we started really heavily focusing on, you know, making sure he wasn't reacting to things for absolutely no reason. Um, it, you know, he became a lot more stable being out and about, but it's definitely something I see a lot of people do with dogs. Like they'll let their dogs just wildly bark at like a woman with a stroller, like two blocks away. And it's like, unless that person presents an actual threat to you, like, I'm not going to let him just light up on like somebody that's like far away because that's just frantic behavior and we don't want to encourage that in him like it also i always made sure that it was if the person's close to the car they look shady or you know if they're on our property then you go ahead and bark like go ahead and let me know but like the lady with a stroller two blocks away it's not a concern i don't need you barking at it mm -hmm. so he he got like what i feel like was the appropriate socialization um and like as far as what he's able to do now it's all it's still all just neutrality like i take him out um he does our group classes like he goes downtown with us like you know and for the most part like he doesn't you know mind anybody unless they get too close to me unless they fixate on him um and the only thing about our dogs he doesn't like is when other dogs are out of control so if there's a dog on a leash just going really crazy or like barking or like lunging like that will um that will cause him to light up otherwise he's just kind of like well it doesn't really matter you know he's pretty like i said we've gotten to the point now where he's pretty he's pretty neutral so it's time to he's at the age now where we're able to start adding a little more little more breaks to all the gas that we built in him mm -hmm. awesome great information um bow hunter country is asking do you need a bigger environment or does it not matter um i guess like what bigger environment um i think in in terms of um socialization and um creating neutral building neutrality um, I mean, you definitely want to get your dogs like out and about like as much as you can, like you want to just make sure they're seeing all the stuff that you typically hear dogs being afraid of, like you want to make sure, you know, that like they're, you know, experiencing, you know, cars going past that they know that, that other dogs exist, that other people exist, like just you're just gonna, I mean, at the very least, like, you know, walks, I always tell people like, or if people are really scared, and you don't like if you're so scared, your dogs can get part of it steps foot outside, like, Put the dog in the car and like drive you know drive have the windows down have them you know like make sure they're tethered or crater or whatever like just let them see and smell and experience things like if you know you're not gonna let them walk around i mean you want to make their world as big as possible like within reason you know i'm not saying you have to go across the country or anything but you'll definitely you know you'll want to make sure that you are focusing on getting your dog you know out there and just experiencing things like there's some dogs that will walk on slick floors like there's just really like ridiculous stuff that like some dogs can be scared of. Like some dogs won't go upstairs that don't have a backing. But so it's just important to kind of get your dogs out to see like just the things that are everyday to us, but are just monumental to them. And the only way you can do this is by just getting them out and just doing everyday things with them. Mm -hmm. Goes for people too. Yeah. Um, okay. How long is Ozzy created throughout the day? Um, he definitely has created the majority of the day. Like all of our dogs, like, love their crates like and by the time that we're done doing stuff with them like they want to go back and they work so hard when they're out ozzy does like 20 you know like he does 20 30 minutes straight of bite work you know almost every day um you know plus obedience plus just fetching a ball plus you know just kind of the time i'll go outside and just hang out with him but by the time he gets back in his kennel like he's you know they're and him and the other dogs like they're all just they're all exhausted like they come out they work they do their stuff then they go back in their crates um it's so, like we definitely you know, treat them like working dogs and not like pets. Like they don't, um, you know, run around in their house. Like they don't free roam. Like we'll hang out with them outside and like they can come in the house and be a pl and be like in a place command. But um, for the most part, like they come out, they work. And by the time they go back in their kennel, they're, they're beat. So I mean, Ozzy has created the majority of his day, like unless like he's coming to work with me or unless he's, you know, traveling around with me doing something, but he loves it in there. He runs right back in there. So and usually he wants to get away from me because he's tired. <laughs> All 
do you take on any board and trains or only works her own dogs? Um, so we definitely do take board and trains. So the majority of board and trains that Mike and I take are more raisin trains or like the working dog, um, dogs that need to be trained because I handle and then Mike decoys like Samson, for example, like uh, he's working Roddy. Samson came to us about, I think it's a year ago now, which is crazy, but he came to us a year ago and he's an example of a dog that, um, you know, we really focused like a lot on, like he was with us for two and a half months. We focused really heavily on protection. We imprinted, um, we did detection on him and protection. So um, we cleaned up his like protection foundation. Then we put, you know, some nose work on him, which he amazingly is great at. And it's really cool to see a Roddy like do scent work, but, um, but he's, uh, but yeah, he's great. So we do that stuff with, you know, a lot of dogs, but we mainly focus on raising trains at this point, I think going forward. So like people that want working dogs or that they have a puppy selected that they would like to, you know, get a foundation with us. Like those, I think that's the majority of dogs that we'll focus on going forward um, just because we'll be traveling a lot, but definitely like working dog stuff and raising trains like are in, um, more like on Mike and I's side of things. So if that's something that people want to do, like that's definitely like our focus. Awesome. Okay. Any tips for a young person wanting to get into protection sports? Um, it's tough because it's like, since I'm not in a protection sport, so I definitely will be transparent um i've never competed in a sport i have no intentions of competing in a sport like i don't know like the psa world i don't know the the igp world the the you know any, anything like that i just know what i've heard so i guess going based upon what i've heard um i would definitely select a club carefully like you know find somebody that lets you come and hang out and like observe like do your research on trainers know what their styles are know what their experience is um you know, and just talk to people, like talk to, you know, look at reviews, like see what people have had positive experiences with that trainer, with that club. Um, there's definitely like a lot of clubs out there, but um, I think it's really easy to kind of get, you know, I, I've heard probably more bad things than good things. It's like, which is unfortunate. That's how it seems to work. You know, bad, bad things travel, you know, a lot faster than anything that's good. And people are always more willing to voice their opinions or, you know, experiences of things that are really, really bad versus good. But um, I'd say like, just be really careful at the club you're selecting, make sure that there are people that really want to see you grow, that really want to help you. They're not there to, you know, to belittle you or they're willing to work on things with your dog. Um, something we see a lot is people just really want, you know, dogs that, you know, autopilot through everything. But I'm really grateful that, you know, knowing Mike, like Mike doesn't shy away from dogs that need help with like grip or need help with outing or need help with, um, you know, environmental stuff, there's a lot of places that don't know how to fix those things. So they'll reject dogs that have issues. So I think finding someone that actually knows how to troubleshoot and problem solve something is really important because the majority of dogs, like, you know, like the last thing you want to do is have your dog fail at something and, you know, look over to the person, your, your mentor, your trainer, or like your fellow club members and have them just be like, I don't know, like, I don't know what we're going to do to fix that. Like, you'd really want someone to say like, hey, like, let's try this or like, we need to do this or this is what we need to work on or go home and practice this. Um, so I feel like just, you know, just do your research, just talk to people and get like a good feel and find people that want you to be there and want you to, to grow and like want to help you and your dog. Great advice. How uncommon is it for a dog to be dual purpose scaled protection and detection? Um, I mean, I don't think it's really uncommon. It really depends. Um, Mike and I were talking about this earlier. It really depends on the area. Like if you're talking about like people's personal dogs, um, I don't, I mean, as far as like dual purpose kind of applies a little bit more to dogs that are, um, you know, like police dogs, but there's definitely a lot of like, you know, police dogs that are dual purpose. But I know Mike was saying that they don't mix narcotics with explosives. So like dogs will be mixed in doing those two things. And I think a lot more people are looking for single purpose dogs because just the training's easier. Like you're not able to, um, dogs aren't mixing up their jobs. They're not choosing to do one thing over the other, you know, like, um, you know, bite work or apprehension versus detection. But I mean, we definitely have a lot of private clients that do that. Like, um, we have a client named Jess, her dog Riley does a ton of, does bite work, does PSA and does, you know, she's a high level detection dog as well. Um, you know, Maddie bitey dogs, her dog does bite work and also is a, a conservation dog. So he does sniffing for like muscles. And then, um, you know, Samson, Samson's an example of a dog that does, you know, both personal protection and, you know, we imprinted scent on him too. So it's definitely not uncommon, but, you know, it's more common other places than it is, you know, maybe in like the private civilian world than, you know, versus police dogs. There's definitely a lot of dual purpose police dogs. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Do you think KPNV males slash duchies are more, are more versatile than other, than other lines? Um, 
Yeah, as far as KMPV, I mean, that's, like, honestly, like, mainly what I have my experience in. I don't think I'd ever own, like, a French, like, line or, like, a ring line. Like, um, a lot of those, like, just from my experience, like, those dogs just are, are more high-strung. And I'm saying that having Aussie, like, those dogs are more high-strung than I feel like what I would personally like. So my preference always will be the KMPV just because I like the energy level. I like the, I like the size of the dogs like that, and I just like the personalities that kind of typically come with KMPV versus like, say like, you know, FCI or like, um, you know, like ring lines. Um, so I'd say, I mean, I'd say like they, you know, in my mind, like they're definitely more versatile and it just, it really depends on the breeding because I mean, depending on the lines, like you can get, um, you know, a lot of versatility out of ring lines. You can get a lot of versatility out of, you know, PSA lines. Like I know um, the, like Jared, um, Jay Wolf, you know, his dog Akuma like seems, you know, to be, you know, extremely intelligent really balanced like great with obedience like great you know with uh like people like other dogs and everything so it's like there's tons of versatility like in like those psa lines as well too thank you for that do you ever give your dogs any cbd products no um i know there's been mixed reviews like on a lot of this stuff um and i know some i talked to one person i said this was disproved but i just I have heard horror stories about dogs um, not being able to properly, their kidneys and liver can't break down and process large amounts of CBD. And I, I still have to look into probably more of like the actual like empirical studies on it to really like say, but to be safe, I haven't given it to any of my dogs. Um, not since Santo was sick because I specifically remember somebody telling me that um, I can't overdose him on it. So it's like uh, giving him a large amount isn't going to hurt him or it wouldn't do anything to him. But there were studies that came out that show that like, if you're giving stuff in uncontrolled doses, like, you know, say dumping, um, you know, half of a bottle, like, or just, you know, giving the dog too much throughout the day, like, there still is no proof that dogs um, can filter that stuff properly through their organs. And then there's really no standard of purity for that as well. So since it's not FDA approved, there's no basis for CBD being able to be tested or like what its purity is, what's really in it. Like I've, you know, I've heard some people have bought it and then had it tested and it's not actual like CBD. It's something else that people are selling as CBD. So I think like, you know, if it's something you're going to give your dogs, like make sure that their organ function is, you know, good, like do the blood work, make sure that everything's functioning well. And then, you know, choose a company that um, is actually that goes through testing that, you know, has proven that they've used the actual ingredients that they're talking about. Don't go some bootleg company that just sells it around the corner. Thank you for that. Can you talk about Canine Street League? Um, that's definitely more of Mike's realm. Um, so Street League, um, let's see other people asking about it. So, um, so Street League is, so what I like to voice it as is, I feel like it's like graded personal protection because um, we use a lot of real life scenarios, but it's what's in that Mike kind of mashed up all of the different styles of other sports. Like he's implemented, you know, ring sports into this PSA, um, you know, KMPV, uh, and, and I'm going to mess this up, NBVK, NBBDK, or some, um, it's the, the Belgian ring sport. And so it's just kind of like, he, like the catches and like the way the dogs are doing things and the different snares. And it's, it's like all of that mixed in with personal protection because we have everything from slip catches, with mo which mocks like a, you know, like a ring catch, like where you're presenting something to a dog and then you pull it away. Or we have things like the carjacking scenario where the car, where a dog's in the car, like you're going to drive it to a certain spot um, the dog's going to be in a crate, you're going to park the car, open the crate, give the dog a command for, you know, to watch the car, guard the car as if you're going into the store. Um, and then a decoy is going to come up on the driver's side, open the driver's side door and try to drive away from the car. And the whole point is before the, the decoy's hand hits the steering wheel, the dog's supposed to bite. Um, but if the decoy is able to drive away in the car, or if they're able to even get in the car, you lose points. So it's kind of like we mix in a lot of it's just, it's kind of like a little bit of everything put into one. So it would create, you know, a dog that does street league, it'd be a very versatile dog. They'd be able to compete in different sports. They'd be a personal yeah. protection dog. We kind of want a little bit of everything for someone. There's also going to be um, like a rally obedience portion that like Nino from, um, you know, STS canine is going to be in charge of um, canine Mike from Canada. He's going to do the, the detection portion of it. Um, and we just have so many different things because we don't want it to be something that like only bite work people can compete in. So it's like people that, you know, have really great obedience, like on their dogs, they can compete in like the freestyle portion of it, you know, or if like you do detection, like there's going to be a detection part of it. So we're trying to make it so there's a little bit of everything for, for everyone in there. But the handbook is online. So if you go to the Street League um, Instagram, 
there is a spot on there like where you can go and download like the handbook and it explains what like the point systems like it explains what the the breakdown of like the different scenarios are and so you can kind of get some more information about what it would look like to train your dog for it and then i think someone's asking about the trial yes yeah, so the first trial is going to be in san diego i believe um i'm just going to pick up my phone but it's right here um i believe it's the 18th of september or so but we'll i'll have my post about it so it's going to be i believe at north county canine um potentially so we'll confirm everything once we go down there meet with dustin and check out the facility but so far everything there looks amazing so um fingers crossed that that's what's going to be so um kind of keep an eye out for more information about it but it's looking like it will be september very cool love it okay the difference between personal and family protection can family protection dogs be treated as pets um i would definitely like the, there's definitely dogs like like Ozzy for example is not a family protection dog because you know I wouldn't just like leave him like hanging out in the house or like he's not handled by multiple people like obviously family protection dogs and for a little you know quite a bit more of sociability in my mind than like a personal protection dog Ozzy's a single handler dog ideally you'd want a family protection dog to function for multiple people in your family um, and they would be a dog that would you know their purpose would be more so to kind of be out on a daily basis be loose in the house like hang out with people and be ready to do their job. Um, for example, Malice, who is Cerberus's half-brother, Malice lives in Arizona with our friend Jen. Um, one of her dogs, Aska, tragically passed away and she needed, you know, she's the example of someone who actually needs a dog um, for you know, a lot of like, things that happened in her personal life, but you know, she needs an active dog that's going to be able to be in her home and do the job. And Malice is a prime example of, of a dog like that. Like he's a dog that like, anybody could pet him like you could hang out with him he's super neutral with dogs like he's just great but like if you tell him the word like he's going to do something so they're definitely like i said like definitely a difference um i wouldn't say that family protection dogs can be treated as pets because the reality is they're not pets i mean they're still working dogs but i do believe they they do have more freedom than personal protection dogs would on like a daily basis and like the you know kind of what we'd want them to to be able to do as far as being able to be handled by other people would you know would be different than a personal protection dog mm -hmm. awesome okay we are past our hour mark <laughs> um your as the last question um where do you see the future of dog training going the future of dog training going hopefully someplace like more positive i mean there's definitely a lot of stuff going on like in the dog world right now that it's tough and like i feel like it divides a lot of people and um it's something that i know that I respect a lot about Mike and that he's worked really hard to do is that we're trying to do a lot of things that bring people together. Like, you know, street leagues intended to bring different people together, drinks and dogs, you know, something that Mike does is meant to bring people together and show people that like, you know, we can have different opinions and different training styles. And it's like, we can still support each other and we can still be nice to each other and not talk shit about each other behind each other's backs. And, you know, like you don't, you don't have to do everything the same and be the same as someone to get along with them and, you know, and to be positive. So, hopefully there's a lot of other people kind of jumping on like that train of, you know, like working with other trainers and being open to learning things from other people and, um, you know, doing things like, I know Dustin Wynn did like the canine summit and it's just, you know, there, it's just nice to see other people doing things that are intended to bring the dog community together instead of divide us. Cause I feel like there's a lot of things that already divide people in general. And it's like, we're all here because we love dogs and because we, you know, want, everything to be better for dogs and for our clients and for, you know, especially like the working dog world, like we should be more supportive. Other people want to see people succeed. So I'm hoping with the other things that people are doing, plus like what we're doing here that people can, you know, feel like there's a little more togetherness and a little more positivity than there's been in the past. Absolutely. And um, just last words of advice from so many people that, back to the being a female handler yeah. um uh just yeah closing closing statement as a as a female handler that everyone really <laughs> looks up to um just do your best not to be discouraged i mean it's it's like it's tough um don't be if if your boyfriend or your fiance or husband is your decoy don't be offended by what they say to you during training they don't mean it <laughs> um and i guess like you know on more serious note just for people that are out there wanting to do like what i'm doing it's not like impossible like it's not a lot of people say like i don't know how you do it or like that would be so hard like 
if you're you know dedicated and like you really want to learn how to do this and like you want to have like this big badass dog like you can definitely do it just be committed to what it is you have to do be committed to listening to your trainer don't let someone tell you that you can't do it because you're a girl or because of your size or because of anything like that like just you know do what you want to do like go out there get your dog be badass yeah (laughs) (laughs) awesome well thank you so much erin really really appreciate you taking the time to do this interview so yeah no problem thank you so much for having me like i said we use the tug that you made us like every day it's what it's how i've taught judith out i hold it in front of his face and that's what he outs for so (laughs) we use it like i know we use it all the time so we're gonna have to get more from you so we can start carrying them in the store so but I'll, I'll definitely hit you up about that. Sounds good. Thank you so right. much. I'll post yeah. this and uh, talk to you soon. Thank you. Have a good night. You too.